Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. God's Word. If you would stand with me, we're going to read the Word of God again. And this is just something that we do to honor God's Word. There, there are little things that we do that helps solidify in our minds that God's Word should be elevated, okay? God's Word is that. It is the Word of God. It is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is a transformative, um, it's, it's not an ancient document, as some might say. It is, it is a transformative, uh, the words of life, okay? And so that is why we stand, and that is why I remind you beforehand and after that this is the Word of God. It's just solidifying in your hearts and minds that this Word should be elevated in your lives. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 17. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace." For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Father, we ask that you illuminate the truth of your word today. We ask that you prepare the hearts and the minds of all who listen and that you would open their eyes that they might understand the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So just to catch us up on a little history here uh, about the church at Corinth, uh, these Christians, remember these are brand new churches. They didn't have the luxury as we do of, of, you know, a couple thousand years worth of church history to look back on. This was a brand new thing. Okay, And so these Corinthian Christians wanted to honor God with their life and in their conduct and with their words and in their deeds. So they wanted to honor Christ in every way, this newfound uh, Savior that they had placed their faith in. But the culture around them was so saturated with paganism, with witchcraft, with spiritualism, and that sort of thing was seeping into the church at Corinth, and they wondered how their newfound faith should affect, should affect every practical matter of their lives and all of those things of which they were accustomed. Which of these practices, they wondered, 
do we need to leave behind? Do we need to let go of and leave in the past? So this prompted these Corinthian believers to then send Paul a letter in which they asked him questions on subjects that they needed clarification on. So this was kind of a Q&A session with the Apostle Paul. They sent him a letter full of questions, and here in this passage he's addressing those questions. As we discovered a few weeks ago, the first question had to do with sex as a single person and, and within marriage and all of the topics sur surrounding that. How do we honor Christ now that we are new believers and have been called out of all these pagan worldly practices? How do we honor Christ with our sex life and in our married life? Okay, And so here we're returning to his answers to those believers in Corinth uh, and, and kind of uh, wrapping up the discussion from a couple weeks ago and starting into a new area of discussion. So 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 17, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Well, Paul was a single man. He had freedom to follow Christ and preach the gospel and go wherever he needed to go. Rightly so, when you have a wife or a husband and children, then your responsibility is in the home, right? So it's just a very simple statement. Uh, I would rather you as believers early on that you would just remain as I. But if you do not have self-control, verse 9, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is not uh, like um, scolding people for not having self-control. It's understood that most people would not have self-control in this area, that there are those who are gifted in this area. Um, it's very self-explanatory. This statement comes from Paul's general instruction back in verse 5, if you recall, in which he says to the married couple who have abstained from sexual activity for a period of time, he says, be sure that after a time you come back together, okay, quote, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's understood that the married couple, uh, having already engaged in a sexual marital relationship with their spouse, that there would be a lack of self-control if it goes too long without coming back together in that manner again. So in this passage, he echoes that same charge for widows and widowers and also uh, having nothing to do with single people because single people, as we know from a couple weeks ago, shouldn't be having sex, period, until it's done in the confines of a marital relationship. So Paul says it's best for them to remain single and serve the Lord in that freedom. However, if there's temptation, a lack of self-control, described here as to burn with passion, and I know some of you know what that means, he confirms it's better for the widow to go ahead or the single person to go ahead and marry, all right? That's not to say that you only marry because you have a lack of self-control. That's a really, really bad idea, okay? Uh, you need to try to walk in the Spirit and have self-control and rely on Him as much as possible and marry the person that, that God uh, brings into your life, okay? So I don't want you to get the wrong idea about that. But on to the next question, it seems because uh, he moves on because he goes from sex and marriage to the subject of being unequally yoked to an unbeliever, and then, of course, the topic of divorce. And it's important to note here that he makes a point to say that these are the commands of Christ. I want you to notice that. 
and they should be obeyed. Uh, but he's not saying he's not saying that you should disregard those, and he's not saying that you should disregard what he's about to say. So let me clarify this. He's saying these are the demands of uh, the demands of Christ, the commands they should be obeyed, and now I am giving you additional. Holy Spirit-inspired information, which obviously is now part of our Scripture, okay? What Paul is not saying is what Jesus said was a command, and what I'm saying is just my opinions. I'm just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks here, right? That's not what Paul is doing at all, and believe it or not, there are some in the church who promotes this idea that Paul's writing here is not inspired, that it's merely him just giving his opinion. Not not possible, okay? This is inspired. So let's read verse 10 here, what Paul has to say. He says, But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, quoting Jesus here, do you understand? And he says, The wife should not leave her husband, but if, if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now remember that Jesus, this is important, you try to keep things in, in the proper context. Jesus said these words, or those words, while they were still under the law. He, he had not yet been crucified. He had not yet been resurrected. He had not yet ascended to the Father. Okay, So they were still under the law at that time. And after this point, after His death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, now we are under grace. Okay, And so that does change things here, and that's what Paul is trying to, to clarify. Obedience to the resurrected Christ for these Gentiles, again, is a brand new thing, and that's what he's trying to get across to them. So Paul is stating even more clarification on the subject, especially for the new believers who had unbelieving spouses. Okay, look at verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. So this is the new information he's saying that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. So that's really clear, right? It's, it's pretty simple stuff. If you believed, even if your spouse is still an unbeliever, you should stay married to them and allow them to stay married to you if they wish to do so. But what's behind this? What's going on here? Why were they asking this particular question? Well, it was because many of the, the believers in that local church and in that culture thought that if you were married to an unbeliever, it actually defiled you. Not only did it defile you, but it defiled any children that would come out of that relationship. All right? Uh, many taught that the union between a believer and an idolatrous pagan was joining Satan to Christ, much like what we've Colton covered a few weeks back. And this worried them. They didn't want to dishonor Christ. They did not want to dishonor His sacrifice. They wanted to live holy, set-apart lives. So for good reason, they, they had these thoughts. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that we covered uh, not too long ago. He said, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? So what he's saying is, you are bought. You are Christ's property. Do not join your body 
with an unbeliever in fornication because you are joining Christ with a harlot. Do you all understand that? So because of that instruction, and it was something that was circulating, right, by word within the churches, they had this concern that if they were married to an unbeliever, that they were doing the same thing. Do you understand? So it's a very valid concern. But he was speaking of fornication prior to marriage. And in this case, they had both in the marriage been pagans, and one of those pagans came to faith in Christ. And so this didn't defile them. Actually, Paul is arguing in this passage just the opposite. The believer sanctifies the unbelievers. Now, before we get too crazy with what this is talking about, let's clarify. This word sanctify here or sanctifies is not a salvation type of sanctification, okay? It's not the Spirit sanctifying the believer. It's not saying, hey, if you marry, a, if an unmarried person, uh, I'm sorry, an unbelieving person marries a believing person that just by that believing person, the faith extends across to the unbelieving and therefore they're saved. That's not what he's saying here. Sanctified here and even holy, a little bit, a little bit later, it is, it is uh, simply the, the, the concept of being set apart, being separated, or even being elevated above where you were before. Okay? So, so let's keep that in mind. Um, obviously, we know in this passage, he's not saying that, you, that if you marry a believer that, and you're an unbeliever that you're saved because he still calls you an unbeliever. Right? So it can't mean that. But again, set apart in the marriage or set apart in a familial type, elevating the family. So think in that context as we read further. And I want to just throw three types of families out there real quick. One, a family in which every person is an unbeliever. And this would be a family completely defiled and depraved and lost in their sinfulness. Understand? So a one family completely unbelieving. Two, a family in which every single person is a believer and follower of Christ. And this would set the family apart from the first group, obviously, because they are all uh, submitting to Christ and making an effort to obey His Word. And then three, there's a family in which there was one or more believers and this family would be elevated or set apart in the sense that they are different from the unbelieving family. They're not quite to the place where everyone in the household is a believing, faithful follower of Christ, but they're also not completely cut off from the gospel like a completely unbelieving family would be. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. So that's when we get into these words, it can be confusing if you think that sanctification in this context means the same as sanctification in the context of salvation, all right? So, because of the believers in that family, in the believing family, there is favor toward them, and that is favor that the unbelieving family would not have. Also, the potential for the salvation of the rest of the family. So, the saved person in the family does not save the rest of the family, but the testimony of their transformation in Christ can lead or has the potential to lead to the salvation of the whole family, including the children. He's saying here 
Your children have no hope, practically, if there's no influence in their life in which someone would proclaim to them the gospel. Does that make sense? So if you there's an unbelieving mom, an unbelieving dad, and, and they have children, and the children never hear the gospel. That's what he's talking about. So then all of a sudden, there's a believer in the family, and those children are going to be able to hear the gospel through that believing parent. Okay? So with that in mind, let's le- uh, read through verse 14 here. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or set apart through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified or set apart uh, through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are impure or unclean, but now they are holy or set apart. Do you understand the context? Give me an amen if you get it. All right. If not, ask me after church, and we'll, I'll try to explain it uh, better. They are favored by God in this way because there's now the potential for them to come to Christ. Then Paul continues arguing why it's best for the believer to remain in an unbelieving family. And it's because the believer doesn't know God's plan ahead of time. We don't know God's plan ahead of time, but God does. Only God knows whom in that household will ultimately be set apart for salvation. Verse 15, If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases but God has called us to peace. So pursue peace in in every possible manner when it comes to an unbelieving person and trying to show them the gospel and be an example. But he's saying here, believer, don't divorce them because they're unbelieving and make an ugly spectacle for the whole world to see that you're impatient and angry and, and this whole thing blows up in your face. That's not the kind of witness we want the world to see. If the spouse chooses to go, let the spouse choose to go and treat them in kindness and love in the way that Christ would. So whether they stay or go in either circumstance, your witness to the unbelieving has potential to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And this again is not saying you have the power to grant them salvation, but rather to lead to their salvation through your transformation and your witness. Verse 17, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. So we have to understand that only God knows His divine assignments, and only God knows whom He has called. And so he says, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. This is Paul's instruction, direct uh, instruction that can be applied to each and every church out there. All believers must make an effort to be a witness for Christ and share the gospel in whatever circumstance they find themselves in. You understand? Every believer must be in a position where they can share the gospel no matter what their circumstance. It it doesn't matter how terrible your situation is or how perfect your situation is. You should be a witness for Christ in both. And that is what people notice and what will cause people to even consider the idea that they need to walk toward the gospel instead of push it away. So never make an assumption 
that someone is too far gone for salvation. Never make that mistake because only God knows who has been appointed and who hasn't. And there within this passage of Scripture, we find some very deep theology for all of us, okay, in considering believing and unbelieving and what our responsibility is as believers to the unbelieving. The bedrock for the believer is this. Once we know Christ and we are growing in the power of the Spirit and in our knowledge and love for God, that should then give us laser focus on fulfilling God's purpose for our lives, which is spreading the gospel, proclaiming the good news. It's, it's very simple. It's not rocket, rocket science. So Paul's saying, walk in this manner. The passion that should drive each of us is that everyone around us, those we love, and even those who are strangers that we come across, every person has an eternal destiny. Every person in this room today, you were not created for time. You were created to exist outside of time in eternity. So you will only spend eternity in one place or the other. And that is the reality. And every person you come across will spend eternity in one place or the other. That is the reality. God has provided a way of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, and only through His Son, Jesus Christ, and in His sovereignty and perfect justice, as is stated in verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each. He calls their names. And we don't know whose name He's calling. It would be nice if we walked around and there would be a stamp on someone's forehead and we could just say, oh, we need a witness to that guy. But we don't know. God knows who's going to wind up with Him in eternity. The Bible says that He knows His sheep even before they hear His voice. Isn't that incredible? He knows His sheep before they even hear His voice. But we don't know. And so it is our divine mission to share the gospel. And through the proclamation of the true gospel, the Bible says His sheep will hear His voice and they will come to Him. His sheep, those who want to walk toward the light, those who are offered salvation will walk to their shepherd. They will hear His voice and respond. We should have a very clear understanding of the gospel then, shouldn't we? If, if we believe that we are the mechanism by which lost people uh, come to the light through the spreading of the gospel, then shouldn't we understand how to share the gospel? That's kind of a no-brainer, right? So my question is, and no, no condemnation, just in your own mind, are you able to clearly and concisely share the gospel, lay out the truth for an unbeliever so that they might believe? Are you able to do that? Would you give a culturally popularized version of the gospel, such as, uh, you know, a malleable, mushy, uh, all-encompassing, almost new-agey kind of gospel where everybody gets in and the truth is almost imperceptible? For instance, would you begin by telling someone that you are of such 
value to God that He bankrupt heaven for you. That sounds beautiful, but that's not the gospel. That's not the Word of God. That's not what it teaches. I've made that mistake even myself in the past. But that's not what God's Word says. First, if you would, turn to Matthew 7 because we're going to camp out there. So I would like to share with you this morning in relation to the context of our passage, I'd like to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, again, Matthew 7, we're going to start in verse 16 in just a few moments. Overall, the gospel means, the gospel is the means by which an eternally damned person can be reconciled to a holy God and through the righteous work of Jesus Christ, they can be forgiven and set apart, and they can live in eternity with Him. That's the gospel, all-encompassing. The overarching message of the gospel. It was the same in the Old Testament. They looked forward to the cross of Christ. We look backward to the cross of Christ. No different. It's all Jesus. But in Matthew seven thirteen, if you're there, let's look at that, that first statement that Jesus makes in this Sermon on the Mount. This incredible sermon in which Christ Himself is presenting the gospel. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Because we know in this passage there are two gates, right? And only one of the two gates leads to life, leads leads to Christ. He says, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. There are many who enter through it. Well, what about the other gate? What about the narrow gate? Verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there's a narrow gate that must first be found and then entered in. But that gate is is very difficult to find. It is constricted, and only one person can pass through that gate at a time. You don't get to stand there with mama or daddy and point to them and say, I'm with them. I'm under their umbrella. They have Jesus. I have Jesus. That's not how it works. One person at a time walks through the narrow gate. Few find it. You know, people, most people would rather walk through this big, wide gate that everyone else is walking through, wouldn't they? Because we love friends around us, and we feel great when we have company around us that think the same way that we do. When there's a crowd, we can hobnob with all the other travelers and enjoy the journey with them, but that isn't always what the gospel looks like. The gospel and that narrow way, that narrow gate can be very isolating and very lonely and can leave you in a place where God's wonderful plan for your life is to die for the sake of the gospel. Right after Jesus gives warning for these travelers who are traveling on this this road along the way, there will be men calling themselves men of God, wearing the uniform, Jesus says, not in those terms, I'm paraphrasing. They're wearing the uniform and they're pointing down the road to destruction. 
So they're coming in the name of Christ as representatives of Christ, but they're pointing down the broad way, down that broad road leading to destruction. Matthew 17 or 7:15. Beware the false prophets, he says immediately. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They're in disguise. They look like one of the sheep. But what does he say here? He says, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. They've got an agenda. And they're pointing you down the wrong path because they're a, they've got an agenda. These are not men of God. These are men whom in their own deception are leading people toward eternal destruction under the guise of preaching eternal life. But they're fooling people. They're giving them a false gospel. They're pointing your spouse to the road of destruction. They're pointing your own children to the road of destruction because they have twisted the gospel into another gospel, Paul says. They've changed it just enough that it's no longer the gospel. I like to use an analogy sometimes of a, a, a can of Coca-Cola packaged perfectly, right? It's got the little beads of water dripping down it. It looks so, so good. You're ready to just grab it and drink it. And you put one drop of arsenic in there. And that can of Coke that looks just like all the other Coke becomes deadly. Do you understand? And that is what we have to understand about the gospel. There's a point in which you change the gospel just enough that it becomes another gospel and it becomes deadly. Jude, in the book of Jude, he describes them as clouds without rain. Clouds without rain. I want you to transport yourself back into this society of agriculture. What was Jude talking about? Well, picture a farmer in the middle of a drought. He's looking up to the sky and he's waiting for these clouds. He sees these thick, dark clouds rolling in, and those clouds hold the promise of rain. And so the farmer waits in anticipation for the promise of one single drop on his crops that so desperately need the rain, and the clouds pass by, and not one single drop of rain falls. And that is what Jude calls these false teachers. They are like those thick, dark clouds rolling in, making all kinds of promises, and the expectant, desperate man is awaiting true life, and no life is ever preached. The gospel is never preached. And he finds, at the end of this broad road, I thought I knew him, and he finds that he had been swindled instead. Look at what Jesus says in, uh, next in Matthew seven twenty one. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. You see, you can claim you're a Christ follower all you want, and you can even convince yourself that you're walking this narrow road that leads to life. But if you have not believed the true gospel, you have been fooled by a false gospel, and you are on the road to destruction. His genuine sheep do not follow the voices of those claiming to be men of God. You have to be very careful who you listen to. Very careful. 
They don't follow these men who claim to be men of God. True sheep follow the voice of the shepherd. We hear his voice. And we follow him. We obey his voice. And Christ's voice, listen to me, Christ's voice is revealed only in the Word of God. In the pages of Scripture alone. And this, this is so serious. It really doesn't get any more serious than this because we're talking about eternal consequences here. We're talking about people's eternal destiny. And when we get the gospel wrong, then we lead others astray and we lead them down that road to destruction. Again, in the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name do many miracles? You see, they called Him Lord. They gave Him lip service. They knew what to call Him. The things they said sounded right and they were still on the road to destruction even though they paid Him that lip service and recognized who He, who he was. What is it that, that uh, Jesus said? Even the demons call Him Lord. You remember what happened when the demon-possessed man saw Jesus? They recognized Him as Lord and Creator and they fell down on their face before Him. They bowed the knee and they subjected themselves to their Almighty Creator. They knew who He was. That's the kind of lordship that even the demons understand. So you can't just call Him Lord. So what does it mean then to call Him Lord? We're going to talk about that. But you have to recognize here also there are convincing signs along the road that, that give them false hope. They pointed to these miracles that they performed. That there were these things that supposedly validated, right? Because we know in, in uh, scriptural history, we know that God validated His Word by signs, miracles, and wonders. So all of a sudden, these people show up on the scene and they're like, well, wait a second. I thought that validated us. There were signs. This is why Jesus said a wicked generation seeks for a sign. Signs are not the point. Signs are part of the process of Christ showing the world that He's God. And, and the prophets showing the world that they came in the name of God and the words they spoke were directly from God. That's what the miracles were for, to validate the message. It was not for a sideshow circus, okay? It's all about, you have to keep the context that it's all about eternal destination. And when you keep that in context, then you know that the believer will get, yes, they will get their wealth in eternity. And by the way, the wealth in eternity is Jesus Christ. And you will get complete healing in eternity. That's called glorification. You're going to get a resurrected body that is impervious to sin and disease and death and all of that. I mean, look, I'm fairly healthy, but this is not my glorified body. Not even close. <laughs> We're all dying the disease of, uh, from the disease of death, are we not? We're all moving slowly in that direction. So here's the thing. Here's what I want you to understand. When you, when you mix temporary earthly signs, temporary earthly signs with an eternal gospel, 
You're walking on dangerous ground in putting a drop of arsenic in the message of the gospel because it's not about the temporal. It's about the eternal. That's what matters most. His genuine sheep do not follow the signs. They follow the shepherd. And again, Christ's voice is revealed only in the pages of Scripture. So those who seemingly say the right things and seemingly do the right things, even the miraculous at times, they are deceived and they are deceiving others. Look at Matthew 7.23. And then I, this is Jesus, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Depart from me. You were on the road to destruction. I know you claimed to know me, but I never knew you. I know you say you had an intimate relationship with me, but I never knew you. I know you were performing all kinds of miracles and and people supposedly followed Christ because of your ministry, but I never knew you. That's not to say that that the Lord can't use a donkey once in a while to get the message of the gospel across. He can do whatever He wants in that regard. So there are people all over uh, the world today meeting in churches that are uh, dishonoring God in their practices, that are, they're unbiblical, but God still calls them out. He will still call and appoint people from within even those churches, and He will place them, their feet on the path of righteousness. That's the God that we serve. But I ask you this question this morning as you look at your life. I know you believe that you know Him. But does He know you? Does He know you? Have you surrendered yourself to such a degree that He's intimate with you? You may be thinking this morning, why are you doing this? Why are you asking these questions? Why are you causing me to question? Because the prideful traveler on the wrong road who continues forward and does not continually evaluate and validate that they are still on the road will most certainly be lost and will never reach the right destination. When we're on a trip, Yes, we use the signs. Yes, we use the, the, the towns that we go through as markers. We, we can very easily uh, figure out where we are on the map by the things that are around us. That's how we know we're making progress, right? If you're driving in circles and you pass the same water tower six times, there's a problem. The wrong road, though, in this sense, leads to eternal destruction, and that's why it's serious. That's why I bring it up. What kind of person would I be? What kind of pastor would I be if I never put this before you and asked you, I know that you think you're a believer. I know that you think that you know Him, but is the proof in the pudding, is the the proof in your life, are you living for Him? Are you surrendering your life to Him? Does He matter to you more than anything else? in this world. So what is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? Let me lay it out there. 
He opens our eyes, then He justifies, then He sanctifies, and then He glorifies. He opens our eyes, then He justifies, then He sanctifies, and then He glorifies. Step one, He opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to what? What does He open our eyes to? He doesn't open your eyes to your value and your worth, because let me just tell you, you're worth nothing without Christ. He is our treasure. Once you place your faith in Him, then we have value, eternal value, but it's only His value in us. Before that, Scripture's very clear. You have to realize first and foremost, your eyes have to be open to the fact that you're spiritually dead with no hope whatsoever. And this, my friends, is the narrow gate. This is the narrow gate. Your pride cannot fit through the narrow gate. You have to leave it on the other side. You can't even pass that way if you're still carrying your pride. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must, you must be born again. How many of you guys can think back to your birth and be like, yeah, I did that. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Did you guys hear I was born? That was all me. We know better, don't we? Had nothing to do with me. Matter of fact, I would have died had the doctor, my mother, my father not cared for me in that very fragile state, and every one of you as well. It is the same thing with the gospel. You were brought into this world with no effort of your own. You did nothing to contribute to your life. And being born again, the Spirit of God opens your eyes to your need for new birth. Your eyes are open to your sin and your own depravity, the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt and you have no hope. And you cannot do anything on your own to fix the problem. You have to start there. Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You cannot submit to God's law without Christ first doing a work in you. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. through 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. through says, Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's saying Satan, the enemy, is blinding their eyes, their mind. They can't see the truth. They, it's impossible. They cannot come to Christ unless Christ first works on their behalf and the Spirit of God removes the blinders and opens their eyes to the truth. John 6, 44, John 6, 44 and 65. No one can come to me, this is Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Our prayer needs to be, Father, open my eyes. Father, let me see what you want me to see, what I need to see in order to have a true revelation of who you are and a true revelation of who Jesus Christ is. It's impossible to be saved until you know how desperately lost you are, and that only the Father can open your eyes to that truth. So have you come to that realization? You're dead 
and deservedly headed for the end and eternal destruction in the lake of fire. That's, where, that's what we all deserve, every single one of us. Every single one of us, that is what we deserve. Do you realize that if you got what you deserve, that would be your destiny? Eternally. Romans 5.8. This is incredible. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what I like to think of when I read this verse? I like to think that as Christ was hanging on that cross, that He thought of me in my very worst moment of my entire life, and He still died for me. Why don't you put yourself there? We're not worthy. We don't deserve it. Christ still died for us. And that's His amazing grace. We sing it all the time. It's amazing because you're so undeserving. And He gave everything for you. He calls your name in spite of your sin. So He opens our eyes, then He justifies. He justifies by His grace. We offer nothing. We contribute nothing. It is all Him. All we do is submit to Him. Once you realize you're a sinner and you come to grips with your hopeless spiritual condition and you follow Him by submitting to Him, you declare Him as Lord. And this isn't the Lord, Lord lip service that we read about earlier in Matthew 7 that the false convert spoke of. This proclamation of Him as your Lord is a complete and total submission to Christ as the supreme master and authority in your life and of your eternal destiny. That's what it means to call Him Lord. And when Paul in his day, when they said He was Lord, it meant that they could lose their life for it. Because every year, once a year, they'd have to burn incense. And they'd have to declare Caesar as Lord. Well, when you become a Christian, what happens? I can't declare Caesar as Lord. Christ is my Lord. Take them away. Take off their head. That's what it meant for that first century believer to call Christ their Lord. For us, we don't have to deal with that today. Some do. All over the world, people do today. But we're very blessed in the country that we live in. We haven't faced anything like that yet. Maybe we won't. But are you willing, would you be willing to give your very life for the gospel of Jesus Christ? When this truly happens, your sin that deserved God's wrath is dealt with once and for all, and the sinless Jesus Christ took your personal sin upon Himself. He took your personal sin. I don't know about you, but I do an inventory. And He took it upon Himself. He absorbed the wrath of His own Father on your behalf. The wrath that you deserve. And because He was sinless, His perfect robe of righteousness is placed upon you. So now when God the Father looks at you, He sees the robe of His Son wrapped around you. All He sees is His Son's finished work. 
and what His Son did on the cross, He no longer sees the wretched person that you were before the cross. Amen? That's what it means to be justified. So He opens your eyes, and then He justifies, and then He sanctifies. And sanctified, uh, being sanctified is the reality of being cleaned up by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. When He opens your eyes and when He justifies, He also adopts you as a son or daughter and He gives you a new nature. He transfers the worldly genetics that you had before the cross, the, the, the genetics of your father, the devil, and He replaces that with new spiritual genetics and you have Christ's nature from that point on. And there is a real tangible transformation that takes place. The old nature that would push you to fulfill your own desires is now replaced with a new passion to fulfill God's desires. The sin that you once loved, you now loathe. You actually hate it with your entire being. You despise it. And when you stumble into sin again, it actually disgusts you in the same way that it would disgust you to fall into a pile of pig manure. I mean, it's like you, you want to get out as soon as you fall in. Amen? That's, the, that's the, the Christian's response to falling back into sin. They want no part of it. We still stumble and we still fall, but, but we're called to a higher purpose. It once defined us, but now He defines us. It was once our identity, but now He's our identity. The Holy Spirit leads you and guides you into truth, specifically in the renewing of your mind by illuminating God's Word so that it will tear down the wrong thinking and the strongholds that you've built up in your life for years, thinking the way the world thinks. And He takes a sledgehammer with the Word of God to all of those things, the things that once entombed you, the things that once would take you to your grave and on to an eternal hell, and He tears those down and builds up a structure of godly thinking in your life, and that's what sets you apart from the world. God's people are continually cleaned up and altered. And the power that sin once had on us begins to dwindle and fade. In the everyday life of the believer, we become more like Christ, bearing the fruit of His nature, of His genetics. By the way, that's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You don't have to float around with your feet three inches off the ground to be spiritual. You have to walk the way that He walked. Let His Spirit transform you into the nature of Christ. And all of those fruits will be manifested in your life and everyone that you love, and everyone that you come into contact with, they will see Christ in you, and you will give them hope. That's how you proclaim the gospel without even firing a shot. For one thing, in the beginning, they see Christ in you. So when you come into a place like this, I was thinking about this earlier today, and we're singing these songs, and we're reading Scripture, and we're doing things that are so different from the way the world acts. It's supposed to feel different. It's supposed to feel otherworldly because it is otherworldly. What we do on a Sunday morning transcends the thinking and the philosophies of this world and it takes us 
into the throne room of God where we can worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is a different nature worshiping the nature of God. And it has nothing to do with what the world is doing. Paul states in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, I'm getting close to finishing here, just hang with me for a four a few more minutes, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this passage. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, he said, he, Paul says, Christ called me for a reason, and even though I face great trial and suffering, I press on to take hold of the prize. I haven't taken hold of it yet, he says. I'm still in process. That's the sanctification. But one thing I do I forget what lies behind. I forget that old nature. I forget all the things, all the trauma, all the things that once defined me. I leave that all behind. How about race? I leave that all behind. How about all the ways I've blown it? I leave it all behind. I forget all of that, and I press on toward the mark, and I reach forward to what is ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's our reward. He's what we look to. Don't look at your past and your sin and all of the things, all of the ways you were victimized and hurt or all of that stuff. Let all of that go. Let it fall by the wayside and, and, and place your eyes firmly on Jesus Christ and watch Him transform your life and watch Him change others around you because of the power of God that is manifested in your life. So He opens our eyes and then He justifies delivering us from the penalty of our sin. And He sanctifies, delivering us from the power of sin in our daily lives. And then He glorifies. He delivers us or will deliver us from the presence of sin forever and ever and ever. And that's what Paul's talking about. I press on. I'm being sanctified, cleaned up. And I haven't been fully cleaned up yet, but I will. I'm going to get that prize. And that prize is going to come in the presence of Jesus at that point, I will be glorified. One last passage. Look at 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2. <clears throat> we covered this in our Scripture reading today. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared yet what we will be. You can't imagine what you're going to look like Later on in the future, in this new reality, he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. What was he like after he resurrected? He was appearing and disappearing. He was walking through walls, entering rooms with locked doors, right? He disguised himself. All of those things, whatever that resurrected body looks like, and I don't even believe we saw the fullness of it there, that's the kind of thing you're going to experience in your glorification when you're with Him. And that's what He's saying. We will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. There is coming a glorious day in a new future reality in which our very eyes will look upon our Lord and Savior and our Master Jesus Christ, the one who gave His life for us, the one who called us by name. We will see Him and when we see Him, what does it say? We shall be like Him. That is the gospel. All of it encompassed. He opens our eyes. He justifies. He sanctifies. And He will glorify us 
on that great and glorious day, delivering us from the penalty of our sin, the power of sin in our everyday lives, and one day the presence of sin forever and ever and ever. And folks, there are those in your life who desperately need to hear this gospel. This is good news. We cannot run away from the responsibility because the stakes are too high. They are eternal.